Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We sometimes joke around our editorial table that the more complimentary peer reviews and the more awards it wins, the fewer copies sell. <laughs> so. That's Jennifer Crew, Associate Provost at Columbia University and the Director of Columbia University Press. She earned her MFA from Columbia's School of the Arts and worked at Columbia University Press during and immediately after graduate school. After a stint in the commercial college textbook publishing industry, she returned to CUP over three decades ago, starting as an acquisitions editor. She's active in the wider world of publishing and academia, serving now as immediate past president of the Association of University Presses and having served on the Executive Council of the Modern Language Association and on the Executive Council of the Professional and Scholarly Publishers Division of the Association of American Publishers. She is the first woman director of an Ivy League University Press. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Max. I'm so glad you're here. And full disclosure to our listeners, I recently joined your advisory board, so this episode will serve as an unredacted promotion of Columbia University Press under your <laughs> enlightened leadership. So all are forewarned. Now you, until this year, were president, and now you are immediate past president, of the Association of University Presses. Can you tell us how many universities are represented in the AUP? Yes. Well, the AUP actually has just a little short of 150 members. They're from around the world. So, for example, the Chinese University Press of Hong Kong or Aarhus University Press in Denmark, Wits University Press in South Africa, many of these you may not have heard of. So they're international members, but the majority are in North America. I'd say the vast majority of member presses are affiliated with universities, probably 125 out of those 150. And the rest are affiliated with nonprofit, scholarly, or cultural organizations that have publishing programs, like, for example, Getty Publishing, mm -hmm. or MoMA has a book division, National Gallery of Art, Minnesota Historical Society, and the like. Before COVID, if you remember that time, I'm sure <laughs> I do. Hard. Did you all meet physically? Oh, yes. We met every June, mid to late June. And sadly, we will not be meeting this June. We will be doing a virtual version of the conference instead of cramming it into two and a half days. I think it's about 10 days for a few hours every afternoon. And those meetings, were they ribald? Were there lots of drinking parties? And, and did you, <laughs> what sort of life was it like? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I'm sure there were some drinking parties, but mainly it's a chance to share information. So people are very eager to meet colleagues doing similar things and share. That organization is just all about sharing. I worked in commercial publishing for a little while, a long time ago, and nobody shared anything. It was all top secret and whatever the company did was the best. And that's how we did it. And we didn't share. But this organization, we all compare notes on how we launch books or what publicity techniques we use or how we can save money in production, that kind of thing. So that's what really goes on there. There are various panels and presentations, and it's really a learning experience and getting to know people. Would you say that between the North American members and the non-North American members, there's a lot in common, or is there more that separates you? 
I would say the international members that have joined us all feel that they really learn a lot. We have a lot of things in common. They often are better funded or their governments provide funding. That's true in Canada too. But we all face the same things that are burning issues, like how do we sell enough copies of the scholarly monograph to break even, and what are the tricks we can share about getting the word out about them. So basically, all of human knowledge rests on your shoulders. <laughs> I like to think that. Okay. There was some controversy about a year ago when Stanford University proposed to reduce its subsidy of the university press because of a structural deficit. Are university presses measured on a for-profit basis or for what they contribute to the reputation of their university? Well, all university presses are not-for-profit organizations, but I like to say that we're not for loss either. Mm -hmm. Usually the home institution will subsidize the operation to a certain extent. It's not that much because we are revenue-generating units of the university, unlike the library, for example. Columbia gets about 10% of our overall operating costs from the university. Stanford's subsidy was a bit larger than that, but they are, of course, located in an expensive area, and there are various reasons that probably they needed that subsidy. So after the provost proposed a reduction, there was a real outcry among the faculty, and a study was done by the faculty, and the support was reinstated. In fact, you know, it just does cost a lot to publish the kinds of books that scholars produce and that they hold in high esteem. And those books are often the ones that lose money because even though they extend knowledge in the field and are considered vital to progress in a particular field, often not enough copies will actually be purchased to cover all the costs that go into it. I would say university presses are measured by scholars and other readers by the quality of the work they produce. There's kind of cultural capital, if you will, and by what they contribute to their university's reputation, by the service they perform for the faculty and for the field. But they're also measured by the administrators to whom they report, by how efficiently they can run their businesses and balance their budget. So I would say the answer to your question is both. The most important thing is that we need to contribute to the reputation of the university and the field, but we need to operate a tight ship and make sure that we're not wasting money. And you're in a unique position in the university because I'm a faculty brat. As you know, my dad taught at Columbia for decades. When you used the phrase faculty outcry, that sounded a little redundant. I think that is <laughs> essential to the faculty to feel a degree of concern about administrative decisions impinging on or shortchanging their capacity to teach right. and to have a voice. You straddle these two worlds of the academic writer and the administrator that you work with in the university. Is that fair to say? Yes. In fact, I say that all the time that, you know, one of the great things about this job is I have one foot in the academic world and one foot in the business world. It is true, I find, that not all faculty, some have a business sense and are savvy and kind of understand it, but not all faculty understand the costs that are involved in running a university, but also running a press. You know, they figure, well, it offers value, so it should be supported without really examining where the money goes. So you also have a teaching role at the university. <laughs> we try. We yes. Try. You mentioned 
the larger world of publishing. The printed book industry was already wavering before COVID-19. So what is the forecast generally for book buying by all the shut-ins around the world? Frankly, book publishing and book selling have always been small margin businesses, but steady ones. Now many people think that just because we're hunkering down at home, we have more time to read and the business should be booming. However, you've probably noticed that all bookstores are closed at the moment. And if you ordered a book on Amazon in March or April, the sale of that book was deprioritized by the company because they wanted to ship essential household items and the like first. Have you considered putting handy wipes as book covers? We could find Clorox wipes. <laughs> we, we might try that. But some types of books are selling more than before. For example, children's books and young adult books, cookbooks, because more people are cooking, craft books and the like. They just don't happen to be the serious nonfiction that we publish, but some sectors are doing better. But on the whole, most publishers' sales are quite far down. I wanted to say also that as you probably read, many people are reporting a lack of attention span during this time, and that would obviously prevent them from being able to read one of our books because ours often do require considerable attention. Or they have young children at home, and between homeschooling and getting their own work done, they really don't have time to read. So that's a factor. For us, this has been a very interesting time because many of the ways we used to get books in front of readers browsing in stores obviously is not happening, but also through review media, et cetera, all those ways that we used to do it have been compromised because the stores are closed and the media have many other stories to cover. So we're trying to be creative in the ways that we get books in front of people through social media and virtual book launches, et cetera. So we're hopeful that sales will pick up over the summer and in the fall. What proportion of the books you publish are by Columbia faculty? It's funny you should ask that because just last year, last fiscal year, we did a study of them. One of the questions we asked ourselves was that. 12% of our list is comprised of books by Columbia faculty authors. And that is actually a high percentage among our peers. It's usually more like 8% from informal surveys that have been done recently. We wouldn't really want the list to have much higher percentage than that because it would look to the outside world as though this was an inside job and Columbia faculty had that insider advantage and could publish with us. And that in turn deflates the standing of the press. We don't want people to think we have a different standard for Columbia faculty, which we don't. We do try to get the leading Columbia faculty in our particular fields and we compete with other top university presses. All of us compete for the top authors, no matter where they're teaching. So there's a free market for authors. Do you have a large proportion from some sector of the world outside of Columbia? Is there a way to describe that? It'd be hard to say. I mean, we have authors from Harvard, Yale, Princeton. We have authors from California. We have Chicago everywhere. And all of us do. When you're in a top tier, that is, you mentioned Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Chicago, there are really a handful of university presses that are at the apex. Is that fair to say? The University Press Association organizes the presses into different groups depending on their size, their revenue. So we are in the largest, what's called the Group 4, 
along with all those presses that I mentioned, Chicago is much bigger than we are, and Yale and Princeton are as well. So we're kind of in the smaller tier of the large group. We do not count Oxford and Cambridge because they are so much bigger. But then there are medium-sized presses. I think of the University of North Carolina Press, for example, which is an excellent press. They have one of the top lists in American history in the country, and they compete against Harvard and Oxford and everybody else who has a top list in that field. The presses tend to specialize and get very good at certain areas, and sometimes a press that isn't in that kind of top tier, as you say, will be have the best list in a particular area. And you mentioned American history as an example. How do the humanities, social sciences, and sciences stack up as percentages of your titles? Our list as a whole has been very humanities-oriented. So I would say that the humanities, you know, literature, film, philosophy, religion, et cetera, they take up a bit more than a third of our list. Social science, and now we're considering history, social science, history, political science, economics, sociology, that's about a third. And then science is the sort of smaller third. We, don't, we have one science editor. Partly the balance that I just outlined is because scientists don't have to write books to be promoted or granted tenure. They do that through articles. Partly it's because not all that many scientists want or can write a book for a general audience. But we have strong lists in certain areas of science, climate science, for example, paleontology has for years been a very strong list for us, neurosciences. So we're building in the areas of strength with the one editor we have, and we are just taking into account that it is harder to write a book for a more educated general reader than it is to write a monograph. A survey a few years ago said that 44% of Americans believe the sun revolved around the earth. So <laughs> <laughs> that cuts down on the readership for your yes, science Yes, it titles. does. Are there trends that are favoring one general discipline over another these days? I'd say there are always academic trends, though it's rare that they would result in a discipline being favored, as you say, on a scholarly publisher's list. A trend might create the need for books in a certain previously underpublished area or unpublished area. And I'm thinking of back in the 1980s, for example, we published books in the area of gender studies before most publishers did. And then we started a list in gay and lesbian studies, which nobody was doing at that time and was quite pioneering and got a lot of attention. So there are trends like that. I also remember maybe 20 years ago that we didn't publish much in the field of religion but suddenly that field started to become very lively in terms of its scholarship and general readers were showing a strong interest in religion. So we grew our own list in that area as did other publishers. You know, now data science I would say is quite strong for obvious reasons. Public health will probably see a bump after this pandemic. But in general, we try to have our publishing strengths mirror the strengths of the university and build up strengths in certain areas over many, many years. So for example, Columbia is very strong in climate science and our list has been strong in that for probably 20 years as well. You mentioned earlier the disparate views of academics versus administrators. Do the administrators care mostly about book sales or do they evaluate reputational benefit? How do you present a case to Columbia about what you're bringing in value? 
I'd say we want our list to be thought of as top flight in each of the areas of publication that we're in, such that leading scholars in a particular field would want to publish a book with us. We want scholars to think of us as a top-tier publisher. So that success we measure, it's sort of on the cultural capital side, if you will. We want to be considered a leading press by our home institution, a kind of jewel in the crown. That is what we consider a success. We also want to do what we can within a reasonable budget and not cost our university more than necessary. And one way we do that is by publishing a mix of different book types. So about a third of our list is made up of important groundbreaking scholarly books that will most likely not earn back their costs. And then we publish about a third of the list as trade books for what we call the educated general reader. And we hope those will earn back their costs and maybe even earn a surplus. And then we also publish course adoption books that are a service to the field and that might sell many years, even if in small numbers, on our backlist. My favorite example of a textbook is classical Japanese, a grammar. Nobody needs to learn classical Japanese unless they're going on in graduate work in pre-modern Japan, but there was no such book on the market and it sells year in, year out. So those books contribute to our overall financial picture. If we just did scholarly monographs, the financial picture would look pretty dire. And I'm guessing classic Japanese grammar stays pretty classic, doesn't change. It does. It doesn't really change. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You mentioned press runs. What is the smallest run you have had and the biggest? Print runs for scholarly monographs that are really only going to reach libraries and individuals in the field. Our average print run is about 400 right now. It's pretty small. When I got into this business, it was more like 1,000. And that is because there's a lot of sharing of books by libraries and individuals don't buy as many books as they used to. So that's on the small print run end. And then for a trade book, we might start 3,500 or 5,000. One of the good developments over the last 10 years or so has been this improvement in short run printing. So we can print on the low side and then quickly reprint again if we see demand. We're cautious about how many we print. Yeah, it's interesting from a business model point of view that someone spends years writing a book and then 400 copies are in circulation. Yes. That feels like a lot of effort for a modest reach. Yes, it does. We sometimes joke around our editorial table that the more complimentary peer reviews, the more the publication committee, which proves every book we offer a contract on, the more they love a book. And the more awards it wins and the more attention it gets at a scholarly conference, the fewer copies sell. It's just a fact of life that libraries now share copies to curb their own costs. And individuals only buy books if they really feel they need them in their library. So they will consult a book, you know, either a physical book or in an electronic platform and not buy it. The small press run is a factor, but you and I have talked about digital platforms before. Is it your experience that ebooks have plateaued? And if so, what do you attribute that to? When ebooks first started up, after the Kindle was released in 2007, and we all scrambled to get all of our books into ebook format, we thought that might be the end of print and nobody would buy a physical book anymore because everybody was all excited about these new devices. And 
And ebook sales did shoot up for some years, probably 10 years or maybe a little less. And then they plateaued. Ebooks, at least on the consumer side, became just another format. Like, do you have a hardcover, a paperback, audio, or ebook? I would say that recently there's been an uptick for us in the sales of large ebook collections to libraries partly because of the COVID situation and people can't physically get to a library so they can read material online. But I think the consumer market for ebooks has pretty much settled down. Some people prefer reading on a device and others prefer print. Some topics and genres are more suited to ebooks. Genre fiction in particular is sold mostly in electronic form now. But some scholarly fields see only a small percentage of their sales in e-form. Some years ago, we did a little study, and books in literary criticism, for example, only 8% of those were sold as e-books. I can imagine also that the weight of Manhattan on the Upper West Side from libraries. <laughs> Jennifer, right. you mentioned audiobooks. You know I'm an audiobook fan and a narrator. But yes. CUP has yet to throw its hat in that ring full force. What do you see happening on that front for the press? Well, audiobooks have really taken off in the market, but it's just the very trade-oriented books, contemporary fiction and general interest nonfiction that audio publishers are interested in. It isn't really worth the time and cost for them to record a scholarly book because it's aimed at scholars, not general readers. The scholars will prefer to read it rather than having it read to them. So audio publishers are looking for a certain level of sales, just like anybody else. So it's the trade portion of our list, about a third of what we publish that's of any interest to audio. I should say there are two ways of exploiting audio rights. One is licensing to an audio publisher who would want to buy the rights. The other is self-producing. You know, if we did our own audiobooks, we would use a professional studio and individual narrators. And we did explore that option, but discovered we probably wouldn't want to go the route of hiring a narrator with an in-home studio. We'd need to have somebody on staff to check, you know, to do quality control and edit. And we just are not set up to that. We're just not sure we would earn back the cost. One university press, Princeton, is experimenting with doing their own audiobooks. And if that works out for them, I'm going to see if we can partner with them. But for now, we're just pursuing licensing rights to audio publishers. And in most cases, they pay us a very modest advance against future royalties. So I checked this the other day. We licensed 13 titles for audio this far, which isn't a lot, but we licensed them to various companies that then produce the audiobook. But broadly, do you think print is going to be facing increasing challenges from electronic distribution? I think that scholarly monographs and the books that advance a particular field and win awards and get the author tenure, et cetera, but that only sell in the hundreds, will eventually not make sense to publish as individual books. And there are many open access experiments going on right now, but to publish a book open access, you need to have the cost covered up front. And so far, no sustained economic model has emerged, although one may. So I'm very interested to see what happens on that front. For now, we're continuing to publish them as books and look for subsidies whenever possible to cover losses. I should say that many people in the academy still do want a physical book and their tenure committees still do. So until that changes, we may be continuing the way we are now. We do also have most of our books on 
many digital platforms and the libraries often prefer to buy them that way. So we earn royalties on those and pay out royalties to the authors as well. So I think on the scholarly front, it will change. But I think for general readers, a lot of people still want the print. So for general interest books, I think that's the way it's going to go. You mentioned tenure. Do you think tenure as we know it will persist as a uniform standard and that publishing a book will be the only key to that golden palace? Well, I think that over a couple last couple of decades, I remember when I was on the MLA Executive Council, there was a lot of talk about trying to open up the idea that it didn't have to be a book. It could be a series of articles that would get you tenure. And that is something that some departments have adopted. It's no longer the holy grail to have a book, but it hasn't changed a lot. I should say that in some fields, articles are more prevalent. Some of the sort of harder social sciences, that's certainly the case. But as for tenure itself, I think what we're seeing now is far fewer tenure track jobs and more reliance on adjuncts, which has been very difficult. I really don't know what's going to happen with tenure. In some ways, if Harvard gets rid of tenure, others will follow suit. Well, Jennifer, what have we missed today? Keep reading and support your independent local bookstore. That is a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for making time today. Well, it's been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Jennifer Crew. Associate Provost at Columbia University and the Director of Columbia University Press. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.